Hey, this is Kevin from Kevin's Barbecue Joints, and welcome to the Kevin's Barbecue Joints podcast. And I'm really excited to share my interview with Robert Sietzma. He is a senior restaurant critic for Eater New York. He used to work for The Village Voice, and he is someone who I've wanted to talk to for a long time. If you're just listening to this on the podcast side, I would recommend, at least for a second, jumping over at least to my Instagram or Twitter or to the YouTube side of this because... He is wearing his mask. He wears a mask when he does any publicity because he doesn't want people to know what his face looks like. He is a dyed-in-the-wool food critic who wants to stay anonymous. So that's really cool, and it's also just interesting just to see him with his mask on during the entire interview. He's had a fascinating journey to land in New York eventually, and it is chock full of dozens and dozens of great little stories Great tidbits about food, things about Jonathan Gold, Anthony Bourdain, Daniel Vaughn. We run the gamut. It jumps back and forth. I could have spent another two or three hours talking to him because he has such a wealth of knowledge. His palate is so diverse. He's been doing this for so many years, so he's seen firsthand how things have changed. And anyone that's watching or listening to this who is in the restaurant business or connected at all or just at least knows about how Yelp has changed things and Instagram and now TikTok and how everyone is a food critic and everyone wants to get their opinion heard. And so it changes the role of a food critic. Again, I can't thank Robert enough for taking the time. I know you guys are going to thoroughly enjoy this. And if you want to follow his antics, he is mostly on Twitter and I'll put that link below. If you're enjoying these, please subscribe. That way you don't miss out. I have a website at kevinsbbqjoints.com. I'm at kevinsbbqjoints on all the social media. But at the end, stay safe and be sure to visit your local barbecue joint and local restaurant. Good morning, Robert. How are you? Pretty good. How are you doing, Kevin? I'm doing well. I'm, I'm happy that we got this going. And I've wanted to talk to you for years. And I've been a fan from afar for years. And and we'll get in. I wanted, I wanted people to get to know you. And maybe we should at least <laughs> talk about the elephant in the room. What, what are you wearing, Robert? Uh, I, this is actually what I look like. Uh, <laughs> I it, oh, that's very rude of me. I <laughs> it, it's a mask that I took from my, my daughter used to have a box of Halloween costumes. And I was supposed to go on TV. I didn't want to miss the opportunity. So I decided to just pick a mask out of the box. And naturally, I picked this one because it's kind of morally ambiguous. Uh, some <laughs> people look at it and they scream and they think of the devil other people you know the satanists among them think oh good the devil's talking to me so um, but it also kind of puts me on the side of evil when it comes to <laughs> dear restaurants so it makes me more able to criticize which is part of the job yeah yeah and and so did you you grew up from what i remember and and it's it works because i i obviously i don't know what you look like and I was hopeful that this is the mask that you would be wearing because, you know, this is the mask that if you Google your name anywhere, even like, I think you did a, uh, I think you even did a Google event, right? Where you talked about Yes, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> and you wore that. That's hilarious. And I'll put a link to all your books below and all your work and all, and, and I don't know, is the best thing muckrake? Is that the best way to? I have no idea. Eater, Just go, uh, go to Eater New York. Yeah, either, um, either. A lot of the old Village Voice pieces are there, but somehow the photos have been stripped away. So I noticed that. Yeah. I mean, without, especially these days, without photos, the criticism is nothing. People don't <laughs> read it. It's, like, it's words. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I've realized that things that are more photo heavy, people seem to really enjoy them a lot more. It's easy to, I guess, to digest somehow. But I wanted to get your, I wanted to get your history. I want people to get a little bit 
more information about you and then also talk about New York barbecue and just the the whole atmosphere of being a food critic in you know 2022 but did you grow up in the midwest um i was born in michigan i grew up in chicago in minneapolis and dallas i went to college in austin texas and then Mm -hmm. i went to grad school in madison wisconsin and then moved to new york that's because of your wife right isn't that that you moved yes exactly right but it's in uh Texas, of course, that I developed a love for barbecue when I lived in Minnesota. I mean, it was all like Lefka and, you know. What's and, that? Uh, what's Ludif- Ludifisk? Ludifisk, which is <laughs> a kind of rotten fish, which is perfectly good. But in Texas, you know, when I landed in a Texas high school in, in Dallas, I found the kids so different from the kids in Minnesota. One of the things we do at lunchtime everyone had a car. I mean, like a broken down car or something, but we would jump in the car and drive like five or six miles to get uh, lunch, you know, and to drink beer while we were (laughs) driving. And we would go to this uh, Uh, thing called in Texas an ice house, which is just like a, (laughs) you know, it's like a bodega in New York. And all of those places, they sold barbecue. And uh, in the barbecue, they would, uh, you know, it was usually the cheapest kind of barbecue there was, which is hot links. Okay. And the hot links would be smoked. They put it in an ice chest and you get the hot links and the barbecue sauce in a bun. And that was your lunch. And then you'd crack open another beer and race it about 90 miles an hour <laughs> back to high school. This is like 16 year olds. Well, it's so, it's so funny. It's, it's when I, it's, I grew up in Los Angeles and I lived in Texas for a year and I had never heard the term ice house before. And I never realized how accessible beer was at small little places. They'd have beer. Like it was just such a, Texas is a different, is definitely a different world. And I've never heard someone say that about their high school experience. I know that in my senior year, we were allowed to leave campus, but I, that's, that's Los Angeles. That's funny that, but that was actually a, a good chance to get a, you know, a taste of barbecue and the, the, those hot links, do they still resonate with you? Do you still remember what oh, they God, Yes, so much so that when a place opened in Brooklyn where the proprietors were from, uh, from Oklahoma, uh, see Oklahoma barbecue in the southern part of the state and Dallas barbecue have everything in common. And one mm-hmm. of them is that the main kind of like poor people's barbecue is hot links. Mm-hmm. And there's other parts of Texas like Port Arthur where sausage is everything because it people can't afford to eat anything else they can't get like fancy pork ribs and stuff like that they eat sausages anyway when this place opened in brooklyn i suspect that they would have hot links you know and they had like you know all sorts of things like you know that fritos with the chili in the bag and stuff like that other vernacular hips and fried bologna sandwiches were another thing that's uh, typical of the cuisine in that area but yes they had real hot links that were imported Uh. from um you know, from Oklahoma. And I just went apeshit. I just, it was so good. But unfortunately, you know, it was too big a pain in the ass and they substituted like Polish sausage or yeah. something like that, which was also fine. But the hot links themselves, I mean, the minute you see the kind that we had, had like a red artificial skin on it. that just, <laughs> you know, like it telegraphed the idea. This is like totally bogus this is like <laughs> artificial and the flavor was so good also i'm sure it had like liquid smoke in it or something but possibly uh, yes yeah I, I specifically remember the guy that sold them who was like tremendously huge 
and would sit on the chest filled with the, uh, and by the way, this is uh, somewhere around between to the, I guess it was to the west of my high school. So this would be like a little town that had been, that Dallas had grown around. And it was actually the site for like the railway station uh, scenes in Bonnie and Clyde. Oh, really? So one of the best parts about eating the sausage, you know, I don't know when I, Bonnie and Clyde occurred while I was living in Dallas. So uh, I'm not quite sure how long it took us to recognize that this oh. was like a site or that whether it's actually really Bonnie cool. and Clyde, but the two are inextricably linked in my mind. Did you like to fast link? Linked, yes, that was very good. That was really good. <laughs> You're really I just thought right. that up. <laughs> I like it. Um, fast forward though, I want to get on to go back, but with uh, Hill Country Barbecue, did you obviously had their sausage there, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, and when Hill Country opened up, I was like so excited, but the name stuck in my craw because the barbecue around Austin tends not to be in the Hill Country, although there's Coopers in Llano and places mm -hmm. like that. Cooper's is a different animal. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. Cooper's would even like serve lamb and stuff like that. It's like who in God's name would eat lamb barbecue? Well, there's people that eat mutton barbecue yeah, in yeah. Kentucky, but Kentucky, uh, yeah, yeah. at any rate, so they so, called it Hill Country, but what it should have been was black dirt farmland east of Austin in a crescent uh, barbecue. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mark Glosserman, I think was like the, he's the one that opened the the barbecue and he was the and still is i guess the son of a former mayor of lockhart uh, uh which in some ways is like the barbecue capital of the world although in other ways not and there's four barbecues in lockhart everyone thinks there's three but yes. there's one that's like actually can be even better are you saying the chisholm trail yeah, Chisholm Trail. I guess people know about it now. But it <laughs> oh, I don't. I don't know if they do. I I bet you a lot of people listening to this or watching this do not. They think and, of, and they don't know that the reason it's called Chisholm Trail is that's where the Chisholm Trail started in mm -hmm. Lockhart. So uh, and it's and it was the first place there to uh, to serve uh, barbecue uh, tacos. Oh, I didn't you know, know that. In in flour tortillas, and nobody else did that at the time except for like a couple of barbecues down in the valley that makes you know, sense way to the south that were so mexican mm -hmm. they were just wonderful because instead of barbecue sauce they had like pico pico and yeah and salsa and it like, was so... barbecue. yeah and now yeah. there's that place in uh in austin that's also a mexican barbecue that's getting a lot of attention valentinas uh, yes exactly thank you uh, and I was there last time I was in Austin and, um, and it was great, you know, but with some of the same Mexican flourishes. So I was going to say, do you wear that when you go, obviously you don't wear that. Like I, I just fell into the same trap that you, we were talking about people thinking that you wear this when you go to restaurants, but when you, so when you travel around Austin, obviously no one, no one knows who you are. So that's. Well, no one knows who I am even in, in uh, New <laughs> in York, York now. New York. I mean, the importance of critics has shrunk to nothing. Uh, pretty much. People don't read critics anymore. They expect to get all their food knowledge from Instagram. Uh, yeah. You know, TikTok now. Or... The sad thing about Instagram is that no one has even tasted the food. They just take the photographs. The photographs are beautiful. You can't tell whether the people that take the photographs got the food for free or if they're publicists or yeah, what. Yeah, you never know. Yeah. So it's uh -huh. like, it's made 
the critical thought and talking about food obsolete. Uh, uh, it's come down the uh, the discussion of food to the point of nothingness. So, and how does that how does that work into your mindset? How do you feel? Like I, you obviously you've explained a little bit how you feel, but that changes. I guess it changes with eater. It changes with everything. It's it. it how do you? Because I was I was going to get into this a little bit later, but we can get well. We could jump around because you know it's it's an interesting topic. Do you when you set out like say because I saw yesterday you 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 had a photo of a hot dog and like a a long a rather large hot dog, but like do you set out? Do you have specific? You must have specific goals, or do you just kind of go to what you're craving, or how do you? I'm sure you have certain ones like I want to do a list of this or create a story based around this, but you. And also too, like I, it is six questions in one. Your palette is such an, you have such an interesting palette too. You're even, yeah. you're posting things on Instagram and I'll put a link below. Cause I think I, I notice stuff on Instagram more than, on, I mean, no, notice stuff on Twitter, excuse me, on Twitter more than I notice stuff, stuff. Oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and, and that's, that's where people should really be following you. But I uh, like, you'll put tongue or you'll put things that like a lot of people aren't. So did you grow, did you grow up eating interesting things or is that? No, well, that, that's the, that's the whole key to my personality and my taste was that I grew up, you know, in the Midwest. Uh, and I'm proud of telling people that until I went away to graduate school, pretty much, I had never had anything but an instant mashed potato. And mainly I'd never had an eggplant. I'd never had, you know, because the food at that time in the Midwest, you know, even if it was food made by immigrants, they, they might have been Polish and they were serving mashed potatoes too. And so I had the blandest, well, it was also the proclivity of my parents, uh, you know, who'd grown up eating kind of Irish and Eastern European food and English food and German food. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and they, you know, they, they served, you know, meatloaf and mashed potatoes and frozen vegetables. And that was, I mean, they were both scientists, so they considered that to be, you know, God's food. It yeah, was food yeah. that was easy to prepare. You know, you just grab the instant mashed potatoes, you put the margarine in the boiling water and just shake in the potato flakes. Also, <laughs> my father was a chemical engineer and my mother was a physicist. Gotcha. And, um, and my father spent most of my childhood working as a formulator for various food companies. In other words, in those days, oh. it was chemical engineers. Well, that was the great age of chemical food. Uh, we're talking gun. about the 50s and the 60s and yeah. the 70s. So he was there inventing flavors. And so we were exposed to all of those things and those things gradually became more exotic, less predictable. Um, he invented uh, nacho flavored Doritos. Did he? And, and other similar things, funny face drinks when he worked at Pillsbury in Minneapolis and confetti angel food cakes and stuff like that. So there was a real kind <laughs> oh, of scientific, so you know. Um, so, but I was, you know, when I went away to college, you know, I, I was not familiar with any other kind of foods. I'd eaten barbecue at Sonny Bryant's, but when I got down to Austin, I became aware of Lockhart. Mm -hmm. uh, at that time, it's hard to believe, but uh, Austin was not a barbecue city, period. Mm -hmm. um, there was a place on Exposition way to the west where the guy who had cooked barbecue for Lyndon Johnson had a, uh, had a barbecue while I was at college. So we would occasionally uh, get, go there in one of our cars on the way to like 
the hippie hollow of uh, nude beach <laughs> and we would like, get ribs and stuff like that <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, i think it was called dale baker barbecue and okay. you can actually look this up i will look it up after uh, we talk. in i mean what's what's in there is that dale baker did the kind of semi-famous barbecues out at the lbj ranch you know, okay. most barbecue guys were more caterers than anything else. So I know it's hard to believe because Austin, it's like a barbecue and a good one every mm -hmm. like two blocks. And well, and, it's, it's changed know. a lot. It changed because it, it was maybe 15 years ago. It was when like John, yeah. Miller, John Miller came down and he had his place and then it kind of. And Micklethwaite and, Micklethwaite, you know, yeah. and then the, you know, various yeah. people. Uh, Aaron from, Franklin, remember him? I'm sure people have heard of him a little bit like <laughs> So oh yeah 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 and, and, and that kind of fame mm -hmm. attaching itself to barbecue i mean we have other famous barbecue people here often they boast of their connections with texas barbecue and here in new york i mean texas barbecue rules i mean every time you know we had that arrogant swine here mm -hmm. which had carolina barbecue we had brother jimmy's which still exists but in general, they pay homage to to Texas. Well, also uh, remember what brisk was it? Uh, brisket. What was the guy that did? Um, he had the pop ups. Delaney, Daniel yeah. Delaney. Yeah, Daniel. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. He he had uh, the first time I ran into him, he had a uh, he was having a pop up in an old Dutch cemetery in Flatbush, <laughs> well, and I'm awesome. going like, this is insane. That's um, crazy. And you know, he was he'd been an ad guy, an advertising guy, and so he was on this like so many people that did other things like mm -hmm. Billy Durney used to be a bodyguard yeah. and a chauffeur, uh -huh. but they like jumped into barbecue like it was a religion, uh -huh. but you know, like Delaney, I, I don't know what he's doing now, but he, he burned out. And I tried to, I tried his... to con connect with him because it's such a visceral part of my memory. I remember how big a deal it was and how he was selling out way in advance. And it was like a good business model because you could sell out a ton, then you can cook. And I think he brought a, pit from franklin or from somewhere i remember that was sort of a and he had it in some movie. obscure neighborhood in brooklyn yeah. you know i think before bushwick became a hit neighborhood he had some like vacant lot or something and so and now billy durney has like a weird location where he does his actual smoking that's uh in red hook still but you know if you stumbled on it it, it almost looks like you know oil wells or something it's like these vertical blackened smokers kind of like lined up because well, i think like, he got in trouble didn't he get in trouble for being too smoky? He, he may have yeah but it, so. it looked like you know some kind of like petroleum storage <laughs> facility you know what's interesting is i was watching this is very tangential i'm not even sure if i'm gonna enter it but it's uh there was a show on discovery plus it was called or it's uh, maybe magnolia i don't know it's called re-motel and it's about how they're redoing these motels across the united states and there's one that was right next to lbj's ranch and it was a motel that they built really quickly for the press to, to stay there so that they wow. could, so that they could, um, you know, cover LBJ when he was in Texas. And there's a room that you could stay at called the press room and they have, and it was where the developing room was that they had. And they could, because the guys would just wait and then they develop their film really quickly, or they would hang out there and then be able to track into church and things. And it was just, it's such an interesting, it was interesting because I hadn't heard about, and I hadn't thought about LBJ until like, six days ago when I watched that little nine minute special. But uh, that's, that, that's interesting that you were, that you would go and get barbecue right by L, the guy that cooked for LBJ. Yeah, that's, that's oh yeah. <laughs> and, it, and it was the only, really the only barbecue in town for a while. When did you get your taste for eating things that were out of the ordinary? When you went to New York, 
did you or would you i guess like in texas you never ate anything too funky maybe tripe or things or what were you eating not even that no i i didn't even know those things exist and they were not popularly available we forget that we are uh in the midst or maybe moving toward the end of the uh the age of foodism which started happening probably in the in the uh, mid 90s where suddenly instead of like going out to you know cocktails dinner a movie after dinner drinks after movie drinks you know or whatever you know suddenly your entertainment was your dinner period mm -hmm. and you started paying all the money that you were paying for the other other attraction of your full evening you know the broadway play all that stuff just disappeared and all it was was eating dinner at a fancy place that everybody was talking about mm -hmm. uh, and also people started cooking at home uh supermarkets popped up that had the broadest range That's of true. exotic well exotic to me but not exotic yeah. to the nationalities that invented them <laughs> yeah. so yeah you would suddenly have you know indonesian sauces and thai curry pastes and you know you go into a whole foods now and it's like it has i would say 200 times the range of products lined up on little tiny parts of shelves mm -hmm. um that a regular supermarket would have you know you had to search those out at the time like when i was i remember remember cooking and i needed to find some kind of i think it was curry leaves or something and it took yeah, me yeah. it took me a week in los angeles to find a place that had fresh curry leaves and so and, and at the time los angeles was better than new york at that sort of thing i mean you know especially with certain nationalities of vietnamese food there has always been better oh, yeah. uh, although we're catching up now but Jonathan Gold and I used to argue about <laughs> which city had the better food, and uh, and he would admit to certain nationalities, and I would admit to other nationalities, and we kind of discuss, you know, at that time Chinese. Then we're talking about you know '90s. Uh, Chinese food was just exploding in mm -hmm. uh, in Los Angeles, and I remember noting that he wrote like three quarters of his columns about Chinese restaurants, and I said, well, how can that be, you know? And then now I'm doing the same thing. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's, it, it's funny how that's, I, regional, I noticed that. <laughs> yeah, regional Chinese food is just exploding here now in, in a different way. It's different immigrants than the ones that were coming to Los Angeles, but an equally rich group of things. So then how did you get into food? Then how, I mean, food writing, were you destined to be a scientist? Is that? Um, I, would, I would be a failed scientist. I majored in college in psychology in uh, when I went to the University of Texas at Austin. But then I went to graduate school in English. I didn't know what the hell I wanted to do except take hallucinogens and do participated demonstrations, which are now no longer called de demonstrations, no. but protests. <laughs> yeah, why well, I, I use the word demonstration? And people looked at me like, are you crazy? What are you talking about? When I was uh, at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, I had some friends who were really interested in like Indian food and we couldn't get it anywhere in Madison. So we started like collecting uh, spices from spice houses. There's a famous spice house in uh, Milwaukee. I don't remember the name of it, but it's been around forever. Okay. We started, you know, cause you can make masalas out of like dried spices that you mm -hmm. get from somewhere else. And so we started like goofing around with Indian food and uh, it just, we loved it, you know, everything there had to be improved, yeah. you know, by learning to make it yourself. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, although I look back nostalgically at my five years in Madison, I never finished my PhD, of course, but, but there was a Chinese restaurant where the waitress was Caucasian and she came from the, uh, the mental health facility run by the state. They, they put her on work release okay. and they served the, the proprietors were Chinese immigrants, but they served this Chinese American food that was all like chow mein and chop suey. But people in Madison weren't sure about white rice. Uh, wow. So they served it with like Wonder Bread. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. And so, I mean, you can't make up stories like that. No, so, you can't. But it, it illustrates, once again, how kind of bland the Midwestern food was at the time. So we really had to, uh, and we would make pilgrimages to Chicago where we could get, you know, um, African-American barbecue on the South side. Uh, which tended to be kind of saucier than smokier, mm -hmm. but we didn't know, although I did having come from Texas. So. Yeah. But still, it was something that you enjoyed. Would you remember then your first, because you didn't start writing reviews until New York, right? Uh, yeah, I didn't start writing reviews until 1993. And I had been in a rock band for 14 years because if you lived in the East Village, that's what you did or you were a complete loser. <laughs> you played so bass, even right? if you weren't in a rock band if you just like carried a guitar case around <laughs> with you you know and hit a certain number of restaurants where that sort of thing was appreciated oh, that's so funny uh, and so there was a critic uh bob Criscow from the village voice when their regular critic went on uh sabbatical to australia that was jeff weinstein he suggested that i should fill in for him uh, while he was gone, because I'd been writing a, a fanzine, which is like a rock newsletter, only about food. So it must have been, and you it know, was, was called Down the Hatch. Is that the? That's right. Yeah, it must have been in the in the mid '80s or the late early '80s that I started really exploring and becoming interested in the food of the city, especially that made by immigrants, uh, and started writing books and collecting. You know, I didn't write books till later, but I was doing this fanzine for years and uh, telling people where to go to get like Burmese food or to get like the biggest prize was African food, which was just started appearing in the late 80s. I remember uh, the first and, time I had African food here. It blew my mind. It was. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It, it's so the flavor palette is so different. Yeah. The means of preparation, just like the pleasures of foo-foo is just are yeah. incalculable and, you know, and, uh, and spicy uh, goat pepper soup, stuff like that, mm -hmm. you know, and at the same time, we were becoming more interested in getting hotter and hotter food and how hot could it be before you just killed yourself with yeah, the yeah, yeah. spice level. So uh, how, now, can you explain for something that is, because <laughs> my audience, Although I'm closer to your age, but but or my audience is to my age. Uh, what a what a fa what a like a fanzine or how would how would people find out about this? Would you drop these off places or would people subscribe to this? Or I was working at the time in a real estate company because that's you know as secretaries is what a lot of the rock musicians did uh, to support themselves because you can work in the office during the day and then you can go off and play gigs and do rehearsals at night, stuff like that. So, and one of the things that the office provided was this thing called a Xerox machine. There's no such thing anymore, as far as I can tell. You just like print it from your computer in multiples yeah. of a hundred. Yeah. But um, they also had like colored paper and, uh, and I worked also, I'd been working in publishing companies that 
published swipe file books, which had like engravings out of copyright stolen from the 19th century and stuff. And so nice. putting these things together, I made this fanzine that was just like little short 300 word pieces about restaurants that I'd visited and what to get there and sometimes how much it costs. So it usually was so cheap that nobody cares how much it costs. I started doing that. And based on that, they offered me the temporary critic position, which eventually turned into the permanent critic position. At the Village uh, Voice. Because at the time, people didn't write about that kind of stuff in newspapers. They wrote about kind of fancier restaurants, which were not nearly as fancy as they are, fancy as they are now. They were more, you know, people wrote about kind of more upscale places where one would go for a special event or something. So yeah, um, it, it didn't take much to be fancy back then, it, it feels like. It oh, yeah. And, and the fancier places tended to be Italian or French. So uh, not the kind of thing that we see today where, you know, they're upscale every kind of restaurants mm. now, which is great. Like, and what's funny too, is when we were younger, French food was scary almost to people. Like, oh yeah. Like, how yeah. could you even order at a place like that? What would you order? What would you get? And, and that was the place where you would encounter scary organ meats. Uh-huh. Oh, that's true. Yeah, yeah, that's probably. So then do you remember your first, what was your first review then at the Village Voice? It was a, uh, a Mexican place in, uh, it was right on, kind of under the elevated on Broadway in a neighborhood in Williamsburg that, that was not considered a hipster neighborhood yet. <laughs> not yet. Uh, and so <clears throat> going there, I, you know, I brought friends with me. I went a couple of times. I just loved it. That was when Pueblan food was first coming into the city. Uh, we, you know, you've had Mexican food forever in Los Angeles, but we didn't really start getting a substantial population of Mexican immigrants until the 1980s. At the time, uh, the, the rumor was that the Volkswagen factory had shut down in the city of Puebla, and that's what it was like driving them all here. And it was true that the Volkswagen factory did shut down around then. But the fact of the matter is that in the southern part of Pueblo, there had been an extended drought and all the farm animals were just croaking in the fields oh. and stuff. Well, in the, you know, the arid yeah. desert-like southern part of Puebla. And that was what was driving everyone to New York. Maybe there were cheaper flights than going to Los Angeles. Yeah. But we just wonder why, yeah, why they end up there. <laughs> you know, Samitas and Pambazos and, uh, and Mole Pipien and... People from Morelos followed them, and we had the food from Cuernavaca, and just, it was so wonderful oh, good. to see these things appearing kind of in small, uh, out-of-the-way places, and then suddenly getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So now there's probably 10 primary Mexican-American neighborhoods. And with yeah. that came, you know, the exploration of where the food came from and why it was this way, and these are things that you could still argue about. Bill from Eater Los Angeles says that, oh, no, the burrito, it comes from Mexico. And to me, the burrito is one of the greatest Mexican-American inventions. Mm -hmm. Oh, uh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I don't, I don't even think, yeah, I think I had a friend who I think in Monterey or no, Chihuahua, he was saying that yeah. a place called, he wanted to open a restaurant here called Burritos Chihuahua, because as you walk down the streets of Chihuahua, you smell the tortillas and it makes your mouth salivate. And he wanted to recreate that. I think in somewhere in San Diego. Nice, nice. Wanted to do, but I, yeah, he never my, did. I don't think he did. My earliest uh, experience with Mexican food was in uh, Texas, of course. Yeah. 
where uh, I would go to San Antonio to get like just amazing Mexican-American food. Uh, I think Tex-Mex is now a permitted term again because it's such a <laughs> beloved term, but, uh, but yeah, the flour tortillas, the, uh, the Velveeta sluiced, you know, enchiladas, the, the cheese enchiladas are another classic uh, San Antonio Mexican. I soon learned that every city in Texas had its own, uh, you know, Mexican American mm -hmm. specialty. Like in Austin, the first thing I was, uh, that I was exposed to was uh, Migas. Um, yeah, people, a lot of people don't know what Migas is either. Yeah, should, which I, is, a, I guess, a, a form of chilaquillas. Every city has its own stuff. You got the puffy, puffy taco in uh -huh. San Antonio, which is. Uh, I just saw a like a little piece somewhere on the puffy taco. And I don't even, because I, I never made my way down to, to San Antonio. And I never got a chance to go to the classic puffy taco places. And I've never had a puffy taco. And then Los Angeles doesn't have, there must be a puffy taco place here. But it's, but I think that, you know, what's funny is when I went to Texas, I felt like the Mexican food was different. It was so good. It was so fantastic. So then your first one was from, was at the Village Voice. How long, how long were you at the Village Voice too? 20 years. 20 years. Because I think there's. 1993 to 2000. No, 1993 to 2013. Wow. That's a good amount of time. And the Village Voice yeah. too was, was an integral paper Things like that, like there and like LA Weekly. It's, it's interesting and sad how things have changed too, because I think it's Village Voice looked at primarily online now. Do people still buy that? Do they, does it even exist? It, it keeps reviving itself like an yeah. animated corpse. <laughs> uh, it is now existing in a, a news box format again, where you can get a solid copy of the oh. paper. I think it's coming out every month or maybe twice a month or something and right. it's all color now and it's you know it's such a valuable brand but yeah apart from michael musto's column it's uh, quite different yeah. um you know there's so much competition and you're right most of the stuff is online so it's weird to see it as a as a throwaway as we used to call it which is a paper that you wrap the fish in after you yeah. read it subway but i loved I, I loved getting the la weekly and, I, and the village voice if i could get a copy of it that was such a treat because not many places here in Los Angeles could you get the Village Voice, and it was. And then when I traveled to New York, I would have it. And so then, how how do you get your head around the New York food scene? It's like, how did you? And and did you ever? This is a question I've I've wanted to ask somebody for the longest time. Did you ever go to Lay Hall? You must have, right? Um, no, but oh. I knew all about it. Okay, uh, you know, I knew what it was at the time. It was considered kind of a second rate steakhouse slash French restaurant. I actually went to the to the incarnation down in Wall Street. Okay. Which is kind of similar. I think it was actually better, but Bourdain himself, you know, admits that he was really not much of a chef. And I <laughs> saying this is like kicking a dead guy, but you know, he, he was more a writer and a personality mm -hmm. and a popularizer of uh cuisines all over the world. So I mean he he did God's work, but uh, this is the devil saying that uh, he did God's work, but, uh, but he would, you know, he wasn't a great chef. He was adequate. Because of that, he had enough knowledge that he could, you know, be with all the chefs and, 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 and at least that you have to be a chef first, I think, to, to be able to do what he did. Did you ever meet Anthony Bourdain? I did on a couple of occasions. One of the, when uh, Daniel, what's his name from Texas Weekly? Bon? Yeah. Um, he. Uh, his 
book, first book was sponsored by Anthony Bourdain. It's on his on his imprint, and, I think. Uh, right? And so I went to a reception for the book and I shook Bourdain's hand. So did you talk? Did, did he know who you were or did you just? Well, he actually, I mean, I assume he knew who I was because he blurbed my book. Oh. Uh, which I'm very grateful for because that's probably the only reason that it sold any copies at all. But how do you pronounce your last name? Sitsama. Sitsama. Okay. Yeah, it, it's a it's a Frisian name from a certain part of uh, around Holland, Michigan. So. Okay, because I've mispronounced it in my head, but I mispronounce a lot of people's names. When I've every book that I've read as a child, everything was I always mispronounce people's names. I don't know. I have like a weird thing in my well, brain. Alan Sitsma from uh, Grub Street. He's the editor of Grub Street. He he has the same name exactly, only it's spelled differently and he pronounces it differently. And we we used to fight about that when we were both. At Grub. <laughs> that, and, and you discussed too. Sitsma, 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 no, Sitsma. <laughs> but see, now you're saying it so many times that I forget how you how you pronounce your name. Sitsma. Sitsma. <laughs> I mean, Robert S. Is, is easy. And it's Robert at Eater.com. If you want to write it right now, it's Robert at Eater.com. Uh, so then, so then from, from Village Voice, you went to Eater, right? Uh, I spent a couple of years as a freelancer, okay. uh, discovering that even though I was had a reputation and had no trouble getting jobs, that if you're freelancing, you're never going to make more than half the money that you make on a staff job. Yeah, yeah. So I, I accepted the uh, Amanda Klute's uh, invitation to join the Eater staff very, very early on. I had been working freelance for them for a while. And then when Vox stepped up to buy Eater, oh, they, yeah. uh, they wanted to kind of beef up the, uh, <laughs> the staff. So. so you've been at Eater ever since. Is that something that, I don't know how this works. Do they give you assignments or do you have specific things that you pitch? Is that how... Or is that even something um, that's no, I or? just, I'm kind of like a loose cannon. They, uh, I'm very fortunate that they let me do what I do and that's it. <laughs> they try to restrain me in the editing process if they can. So <laughs> is that easy? I don't know how easy that but is. It but it was weird going through COVID because, you know, you weren't allowed to criticize restaurants anymore and uh, people were terrified of eating in. And uh, so, you know, I do, that was a fascinating time and it may be continuing, who knows? Yeah, I was wondering how you go about that because it's we're at a time right now where you're criticizing restaurants when they're struggling and when like it, it's especially and something how polarizing Yelp is. How does how do you go about your do you do you feel like you're what do you even feel like you're writing? Do you feel like you're writing a review or you're writing a like a spotlight or how what's um the reviews have changed. I my I now, you know, you're right. They, you can't criticize in the same way that you used to or the way that they do it in England where they just like rip a new asshole for a restaurant. <laughs> yeah, it's basically the standard <laughs> critique. So we don't do that. But my interest was always in the historical, anthropological, cultural underpinnings of restaurants anyway. So I could basically still do that. Mm -hmm. um, a bigger question is that there was a movement that only people of a certain ethnicity are allowed to write about that ethnicity, and which is insane. Yeah, uh, because nobody quite understands food like an outsider. So, uh, you know, in, in people that are writing about their own eth ethnicity tend to be like really patronizing mm -hmm. and not critical at all. So, um, you know, I'm not complaining about that, but I'm lucky to still be working. Yeah, 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 okay. yeah definitely. Well, let's let's kind of jump a little bit to the like meat centric 
part the bar barbecue sure. wise the, the evolution of barbecue in new york has changed there was like like the early days you were talking about but now how how would you describe the the new york barbecue scene and are there places that you frequent oh yeah I have right around the corner from me a Mighty Quinn's where I can get like a good brisket sandwich with a couple of like small side dishes for like $10 still. So oh, that's, that's a constant go-to. I'm near uh, Hill Country, which I still love. Mm -hmm. uh, I go to hometown. Uh, I tend now to go to motor to Industry City because it's less crowded than the one in Red Hook. But Can you uh, describe that one? Because I don't think a lot of people know there's a second hometown, which they should. You mean, yeah. Yeah. Um, and for a while, uh, Derny was doing some of his crazy experiments there. Uh, I mean, he started like goofing around with turkey when he started losing weight and wanted to eat kind of like a less fatty barbecue. Mm -hmm. He did that uh, in Red Hook, but the pastrami, I believe it was uh, Industry City all the way. Industry City right. is a uh, down the hill from Red Hook, or, or excuse me, from Sunset Park. So it's like around 36th or 40th Street. Uh, it runs all along there. And it had been like uh, an incubator of businesses uh, for decades before starting, uh. I think, at the Second World War. Uh, and they turned it into kind of like a hipsterized food court, uh, you know, with a few like it was like what Chelsea Market became. Uh, I think that may have been the prototype, but um, lots of restaurants, lots of counters, bakeries, that kind of stuff in these long kind of almost military buildings oh, with courtyards in between where they make little fire pits and shit like that. Um, so there is a, uh, a wonderful version of, uh, of hometown that is quite different in tone. You know, was, was this the one that was supposed to be more like a deli at one point? It yes, it began okay. as a deli. Okay. Uh, you know, and that's why he was doing the uh, pastrami. Okay. Which I declared it the best pastrami in town. And I love pastrami. The traditional pastrami is not quite so smoky. So he was careful not to make it too smoky. Mm -hmm. But pastrami with the spices rubbed on it, with the, the curing in brine, oh. with all that kind of stuff. Then you put like a regular smoke on top of that. It's just it's ecstatic yes. it's just special so and there was something nice about the location uh in industry city um that's because the one in uh in red hook was still laboring under this idea that if you're going to do a barbecue you have to make it look like a texas barbecue mm. complete with like kind of rustic signs and <laughs> yeah. barn wood that hasn't been sanded down and <laughs> You know, and the smokers kind of where you can admire them. You know, I'm thinking about Kreitz or Smitty's or yeah, one yeah, of those yeah. places where, where, where it's can... an ordeal by by smoke mm -hmm. to get your barbecue. I mean, you have to stand in line in this room where, you know, it's like you're in Orange County or something during the wildfires. <laughs> it's like exactly. you become a smoked, a smoked uh -huh. entity yourself. So, but this place was just, it was just like a counter and it was like a tent in back where you could like sit. Okay. Uh, no reference to Texas whatsoever, other than the barbecue itself. Yeah. And um, it, and it, did, did that close down a little bit during COVID time or was that? I think that may have been the one that was open, but I don't, you know, okay, remember. Yeah, no, it was, I COVID, you know, barbecues were especially well set up to serve people during 
you know, COVID because they're the kind of places where a lot of people come in and they carry it out. It's yeah, not yeah. like a, a place business, where yeah. you expect to go in and do a barn dance or whatever. It's, uh, you know, they're, they were really good. Although a bunch of places did actually close down mm-hmm. during COVID, inclu- including this one in Park Slope. I'm misremembering the name, but, uh, but it, it literally burned down. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. Okay. I'm, I'm trying to yeah, remember yeah. which one. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. It was really good. And it started out with like a pit master from Texas and uh, oh, I could look it's it up. It's escaped, yeah. 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 It's, 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 it's closed yeah. now. Yeah, yeah. But, um, but, and then all, but for the longest time, when you'd hear about tech, I mean, uh, New York barbecue, you'd hear about Fet Sao. Is that, am I pronouncing it right? Fet Sao or Fet Sao? Fet Sao. It's still Fet there. Sao. It's yeah. still quirky and still weird, still very much hard liquor oriented. Okay. Uh, you know, that's where you get a shot of whiskey. And you. I tried it during, it was open all during COVID. And I tried it. I went in there because I was desperate for some brisket, I think. And uh, all, all of these Texas style places in New York have these like little annoying quirks. <laughs> Not very many of them, but they always want to introduce something um, that's annoying. And what's the, what's the uh, annoying thing about fit, fetus? Is well, it fetus like, um, like the dinosaur barbecue, which yeah, started gonna... out kind of mediocre because it was like descended from a Syracuse biker bar. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so you know they they play fast and loose with the name barbecue, but um, but when it came to New York and Manhattan Valley, which is West Harlem, they. Um, they started making these brisket sandwiches and the brisket was good, but then they put this like horseradish sauce on it, what? which is kind of an up, horseradish mayo, which is kind of an upstate thing. Mm-hmm. So, and that was annoying, but I think they've cut back on that now. I think that's just an option. Dinosaur is something too that people, because because Mighty Quinn's and I've talked to Hugh before and they have a lot of locations, which is nice to hear that it's really good because I, I like Hugh. He's, he's been really, really kind to me, but uh, he's Dinos- from Houston. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's Man, also yeah. really into biking, too. Uh, he's a cyclist. Oh, really? He's a big cyclist. He's a, he's... I thought you were going to say motorcyclist. No, no, no. I don't, I don't <laughs> perhaps, but I know that he bikes a lot. Like, it's something that he, he comes out, I think he has a place here in, in like, near Santa Barbara or somewhere, somewhere nice. between here is LA, and he kind of, he bikes a lot. That's his, his, his thing. But they, and I think a lot of stuff for charity, too. But he, but dinosaur is something that people, I don't think, it's not their first thought when they go to New York to go try dinosaur barbecue, but there's what, cause there's two locations in the city, right? Is that. There were four. There are now maybe two or three. Yeah. The park slope one closed. Uh, yeah. There's a couple of them and he has like ones in like random places. I don't remember where they are, but like Tokyo or Chicago. Yeah. Or, it's a weird. It's I a know weird. he has one in Newark, Newark, New Jersey. Okay. Um, you know, he, he it's not the most kind of religious barbecue place uh but that's what makes it good it you know there's some real new york terroir there he makes this thing that's a syracuse specialty called salt baked potatoes and it it's really i mean there are things that new york has trying to turn i've got a landline can you believe that that's awesome Um, i like that you do yeah so uh the the devil has a landline (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's that's going to be my autobiography. <laughs> uh, so, you know, having the salt baked potatoes, having that kind of stuff, there there are things that New York can contribute mm-hmm. to the barbecue canon. It's not just all slavishly worshipping Texas barbecue. Mm-hmm. Which I don't um, think it should be. No, no, no. And Fetisau, they, you know, a bunch of places here have just, uh, including to a certain extent, hometown, 
have just thrown caution to the winds. And when Fetisau opened up, they would barbecue anything. You would like go in there and you would have pigtails. Now a pigtail, it's not like a chicken foot. No. It's not the kind of thing where, you know, you want to gnaw on it all day. It's like hard as a rock. And I'm going like, pigtails? Still, I appreciated it. Anywhere, their, their annoying feature is that the bread consists of these little tiny rolls. Oh. I mean, just oh. so if you're going to make a sandwich, it's going to be a slider. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, to me, no. one of the most important things about Texas barbecue is not just the soda crackers that are they have in the oldest places but the, the mrs baird's white bread yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. because yeah. you take the piece of white bread in one hand you put a couple of slices of brisket on it you put a jalapeno you put a pickle and no barbecue sauce yeah. and then you just wrap it up and you eat it like mm-hmm. a wrap yeah, maybe some onion if you. <laughs> oh, I, oh, I forgot the raw onion. Yes, yeah. you must get raw. So yes. Yeah, it's it, all, it all it all cuts. Yeah, don't they all don't they serve everything in mason jars too? Is that something that they? I think that's another of the affectations. Yes, yeah, yeah. it's like I'm not sure yeah. if that annoys you or not. <laughs> I don't know if that annoys you or not. But I saw someone writing a piece about a place called Mason Jar, and they're like, everything's in Mason Jars, even the salt shakers. And I'm like, who cares? Like, like <laughs> <laughs> great, <laughs> like everything's better that way. And but it's uh, I wanted to talk to you too about Izzy's because I think Izzy and I spoke to him ages ago, like four or five uh-huh. years when I first started this, and he it was an interesting interview. But it was interesting because for someone that is kosher to have never tried brisket like he never had actual brisket until like aaron franklin cooked him a kosher brisket one time i think he went to texas and aaron franklin cooked him and then he went they have regular brisket which is roasted with gravy they have uh corned beef which is uh brined and with spices and then served and they have pastrami which is one step beyond that yeah. which is brined and then it's uh, rubbed with spices and smoked so you know and the spices are interesting spices it's like mm-hmm. coriander and peppercorns and stuff like that so there is nothing incompatible about making that brisket by smoking because pastrami is already smoked although mm-hmm. not so heavily true um uh, daniel vaughn and i have gone back and forth for years uh, about my crazy theory that pastrami new york pastrami is owing to the pastrami made in uh, in Texas. In other words, it was invented in Texas and then came back to New York. Uh, people, the regular theory is that this is uh, Romanian basturma that Romanian Jews brought here. Uh, the problem is I looked into all the menus okay. of, uh, of old uh, Romanian restaurants, Romanian Jewish restaurants on the Lower East Side which is a very popular restaurant genre, and none of them serve pastrami. I mean, pastrami was something picked up as newfangled by delis like Katz's, mm-hmm. which were originally German Jewish. But uh, did, which, so the early days of Katz's, did they have pastrami? No, a- it says on the side, it says Fabrikwurst, it, it's, which is Yiddish for sausage maker. Ah, uh, my Yiddish So anyway, is ter- who knows, <laughs> maybe about, but Daniel Vaughn was able to dig up these, uh, these ads that were in 19th century Texas newspapers. I mean, they were like Jews all over Texas. They had kosher butcher shops, 
but they weren't very kosher because they often sold pork, but they would call it kosher as kind of like a term for mm -hmm. Jewish. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, he looked up these things and, uh, and did further research and discovered that um, the brisket was a cut that no one would buy. And so not only did they use it to make their own specialties, but they said, well, let's smoke this fucker. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and so they probably, in, I mean, this is a crackpot theory and no one should believe this, but uh, it's possible that it went back because the Jews are a peripatetic people. They mm -hmm. move around. Yeah, and yeah. It's not at all impossible that people that had been in Texas came back to New York. That would be interesting to find out the first place that ever served pastrami in new york then that would yeah because be... it wasn't it wasn't the earliest kind of and on top of that the earliest delis uh jewish delis were not necessarily jewish they were just some of them were gentile at the time there were a lot of immigrants from germany and um and they were jewish and christian and they lived together in complete harmony just like today <laughs> imagine that yeah that's yeah, well because they were all like pretty yeah. well off and it wasn't they didn't have you know an x to grind against their fellow kind of religionists that is true that is true it's interesting too when i went i went to cats for the first time it's it's a whole thing like it's it's not just going and getting it's they give you that ticket and if you lose that ticket do you have to pay for like what is full price 50 what is, bucks 50 bucks yeah Oh, that weird like how many people have lost tickets you think or is that something that doesn't happen well, nowadays it wouldn't be so hard to uh to eat 50 bucks worth of yeah i know food, so maybe you should lose your ticket <laughs> but everyone Actually, loses their ticket yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's just it, it was um they have a, a french restaurant of which there are very few left in paris called a bouillon okay. which were basically working class eateries and that's like a bouillon. It's like a place where working class people sit down and eat a sandwich or whatever. It's a very bare bones lunchroom. And now it looks exotic to us, especially with all those stupid celebrity photos all over all the walls. But yeah, yeah. It, it's one that, of though. New York's greatest places. Yeah. And, and it's it's a must visit. And it's it, it's something, but it was something too, like when I did visit, because I had built it up in my head for so long, it was so different than I imagined, but also too, watching them carve the astronomy of the corn like it's just it's a beautiful any any deli i'm that's just my thing i like to watch meat. well yeah hand carving is as important as it is in another another thing in common with texas yeah barbecue is you know you don't put that thing on a slicer you uh so there you yourself. go there's the that's yeah there that's is. another commonality you know it, it just shows that it's of the same vintage though for sure yeah 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 i went for and it's it's much much better if it's hand carved there's there's an, only yeah. another one uh, other deli in town that is still hand carving. So, which one is that? Uh, is it Fleischer's? No, it's, uh, it sounds like Fleischer's. It's in Greenpoint, okay. and uh, and it's a it's a new place. It's only a few years old, but you know oh, okay. they consciously started. Sure, I wanted to ask you, what's your favorite old time steakhouse? Uh, definitely Luger. Luger. Although I like Keen's, Luger is better. Keens is preferable only because you can get that so-called mutton chop, <laughs> uh, which is not really mutton, it's lamb. You know, uh, I was talking to the guys that own Damaka, which is one of the kind of upscale Indian restaurants here that's like wildly popular. And they were telling me that to get mutton, you have to go to, uh, to Arizona. That's where they get their mutton because you just <laughs> literally, there is no market for the kind of like, you know, 
aged sheep that has the tough. And of course, if you go to Owensboro, Kentucky too, you can get mutton. I mean, mm -hmm. mutton was a favorite barbecue meat in certain parts. Oh yeah. Supposedly the barbecue in uh, Owensboro was invented not by German farmers or by African-American shopkeepers, but by, uh, by Dutch shepherds, he says proudly. Interesting. Uh, in the 18th century, uh, you know, that they would take the sheep that were old and weren't producing wool anymore and like barbecue their necks and stuff like that. So <laughs> that makes you, know, you can it. still, I mean, at least the last time I went to Owensboro, Kentucky, uh, which is the birthplace and home of Johnny Depp. Um, ah. You, you could, uh, you and there's a, mutton barbecues all over North Kentucky, but you mm -hmm. could, uh, you could get, you know, cuts like the spine and the, you know, things that are not, not normally considered like ah. tasty morsels of meat. I need to, I, I didn't know. I think that's one of the, one of the best things we've learned is that Johnny Depp came from Owensboro. That is, he that doesn't, he doesn't represent it. He doesn't, he, he never yeah. talks about it. No, well, I can see why. <laughs> I think he has other he has other fish to fry right now. I think he's. I love these non spectacular towns. Like if I hadn't gone to Snows, I never would have gone to Lexington, Texas. It's so mm -hmm. out of the way. But just to see what places like that are like is just uh -huh. golden. Uh, That's the best reason I know for food tourism, other than learning things about people that are not like yourself. Definitely, and that's and I think that's the best part, and that's something too. My dad's. 13 years passed away, but his thing was, he always wanted to travel more across the United States. He said, you know, people can go to Europe, people can go anywhere, Asia, but there's so much to see in the United States and there's so many little small towns and there's so much, so much great food and local cuisine. And that's, I, I, I agree completely, but like, why do you like Peter Luger so much? Is it just because it's just the pinnacle? It's that good. Yeah. And also the fact that the stakes are ritual. The way they do it, like the tilting the tilting the steak in the plate, uh, and these now Serbian waiters. I mean, it used to be German waiters years ago, but uh, they have this panache about them. They have this style. Uh, that doesn't mean they're friendly or they're nice or anything. It just means that you go to begin with. The, there's no choice of steaks either. Like it's a porterhouse, or occasionally like a ribeye, but that's only when they run out of porterhouses. Also, it's prime meat, which is now with the black Angus everywhere, you know, they, they call that prime sometimes, but it's not graded no. in the same way. So, uh, and of course, that's Aaron Franklin's dirty secret. <laughs> the way he became the best barbecue in the world is not by using the shit grade of meat and barbecuing the crap out of it, by just saying, hey, I'm just going to use prime yeah. meat. Mm -hmm. It's going to taste like a million times better. And oh, yeah, yeah. Definitely. And they, there is a difference. It's, I think that people, the people have had good steaks. And then when you go somewhere really good for a good steakhouse or really good barbecue, and they're using prime meat, there's that epiphany that it's like, oh, this is what I've been missing all these years. It's yeah. Yeah. I would love to maybe do a part two in six months. I would love to talk more. Maybe I can come with more concise questions, but I just wanted to pe people to get to know you a little bit better and to know, you know, get a handle as to what the food scene is right now in New York and it, we that's it's so there's there's so much to eat in New York it's difficult is there a oh, favorite yeah. hot do you have a favorite hot dog place I hate that's like um, I don't know if, I, I would say Grace Papaya, Grace Papaya yeah uh, which is up at 72nd and Broadway uh yeah. good place for the very distinctive natural skinned 
New York Franks. Don't dare put relish or ketchup on it because that's, they do have that there. And I see people doing it. And what's me? Makes uh, me want to tear my artificial hair out. <laughs> but yeah, either New York Frank has, you know, sauerkraut and mustard are the standard. And some Greek guy invented this like weird canned onion thing. Stay away from that too. Just oh, those like red, those red, those red onion things. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, they're they're weird. But I mean, some people like them. Use it if you want. But or go across the um, the river in the path train to Boulevard Drinks, Boulevard which Drink. is right near the third stop on the path going toward Newark. Okay. And. Uh, it's a journal square, right on the square. And there they have their so-called chili, which isn't chili, but a, a Greek meat sauce with lots of cinnamon in it. So oh, uh, and they, that's what they put on their Franks. And it has onions chopped up in it too. So, uh, Oh, that sounds so good. And it's, it's funny too, we could do a whole thing on, on hot dogs and, and oh, yeah. in New York, I'm sure. But let's, let's, Let's kind of end this now. I I, okay, cool. I appreciate the fact that you know that you took the time, and this is so. I've wanted to talk to you forever, and it's. I appreciate what you do, and I also appreciate the fact that you're anonymous. I think in this day and age, everyone wants to show their face, especially close-ups of themselves eating, which is. Most, <laughs> I'm, I'm the, the least fan of that, but it's. I I just I appreciate what you're doing, and and I and thank you for you know your hard work, and thank you for taking the time to talk to me and. Uh, and thanks, Kevin. That was this has been fun, and so looking fun. forward to doing it again. Have a great week, and yeah. thanks for and I thanks for keeping up with my new five thousand dollar purchase. Gosh, that <laughs> I, for, for the, I can't believe that, how much money I had to spend on the new computer, but it's an investment, right? It's uh, yeah. <laughs> oh Lord, yesterday was hell. Anyways, have a great day, and uh, I'll talk to you soon. Okay, doc. Thanks, Kevin. Thank you, sir. All right, bye.